Okay, hold on. I got to reveal us on the air here and we can talk about it. Love to change the world. Thank you, Alvin Lee. Get that little formality out of the way here and see if we can get the Friday show started. Got Brent Winters with us on board, as is our custom on Fridays. Mighty happy to have him. And uh, let's see some of the uh, specifics out of the way. It is date stamped December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. And uh, Roger Sales and Brent Winters with you as the hosts. And uh, we are broadcasting and streaming on the Eurofolk Radio Network along with GlobalVoiceRadio.net and possibly some others that I don't even know about. So uh, that's what we do here. It is the Friday edition, and we're glad to have you with us. We were just kind of talking before the show went on about the uh, weather that everybody's, well, almost everybody's experiencing. And how cold it is and some of the things uh, Gary was just on. You could tell them, Gary, if you want to come on and tell us how cold it was a night or two ago in Montana. Are you there? The night before last, it was uh, minus 44 degrees. That's actual temperature. That's not wind chill. No, that's the temperature. Right. Yeah. So I uh, hope you got your north. Hope you're layered up and you got a nice north face jacket on you know i i read somebody where a while back it just struck me as funny especially this time of year some guy out in the country you know farmer kind of like brent you know i live in the wabash valley there and he says i can always tell those city folks because they got those puffy puffy jackets on (laughs) i hope all of y'all got your puffy jackets handy because uh Pretty much wore hoodies yesterday. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Get you some What'd of that. I love to... those thick skinned. Uh... <laughs> Why don't you contrast to it with. Uh, and if the sun's out, it really doesn't feel very cold. Right. Now, now you go step in the shade. Now that's a different story. But right. as long as you're in the sun, it feels pretty good. Right. Well. I guess uh, and y'all are predicting high temperatures in the 40s next week in some of the Montana and Ohio and stuff. So who knows? Just a really uh, unusual Arctic blast and probably from the uh, global solar minimum stuff would be my guess. Uh, Brent, how in the world are you doing? You had a good week? Yeah, Roger, I'm okay. I hope you are. I hope that all those that are listening uh, – Regardless of whatever else crazy may be going on in the world, it really doesn't amount to much, by the way. Uh, how they're doing in their personal lives, I see uh, Anthony Barry and Bore from Virginia, G. Montana, Merca Max, Paul, GBN, of course, Roger. Then I have a number here, 406590 number, then an 870405 number. Got two of those. I don't know what that's all about. Alan, with one L, I might add. Andy, Arizona Bill, showed up. Ben G. Brent Buchanan, Byron. Carol from Michigan. Cassilios, 
Craig C, Dan, Doug, and then F. Ah, F. F, F is with and us. And then Geoffrey. Geoffrey GF2. Okay. Joan. Joe. Okay. Jubilee, Julian, Michigan. Kent and Kirby. Lewis, or Louie, probably. Mark from Missouri. Mark T. That doesn't stand for Twain, but maybe it does. I don't know. Mike P. Mike from Arizona. Monique. Patty from Michigan, Princess Randy, Rich from Mid-Minnesota, Sam and Samuel, Stacy from Georgia, Susie from PA, and there, Victoria, there it is, uh, Wayne and uh, William, and more to come probably, but no, all are doing okay, I'm okay uh, so far, Roger, but all these things that are happening in the world, I was thinking this morning it'd be time to slow down and say, you know, really to pit, pinch a dried owl manure, what's going on. We think it does, but it doesn't. Just a bunch and other religious fanatics that are trying to hype the rest of us so they can milk us for money for some reason. That's all it is. That's all Ben, and that's all it is. And so with your indulgence, Roger, I thought what I ought to do this morning, since I don't really celebrate Christmas because it's not part of the Bible at all, but it is part of the Bible to know and understand the birth of the of the anointed one of God, the Messiah himself. And so what should we do on Christmas? And this is what we should do on what is called Christmas. There is no such thing as a mass for Christ. That's a Babylonian demonic approach to reality but there is such a person such a man as jesus christ and the record of his life death burial resurrection and his continued ascension in life are part of god's testimony and law and so what i'd like to do is read from the only account we have in the god of of his Breeding his birth and his his um, his um, well his life, but more particularly his birth of a virgin, his birth of a virgin girl. And so, if uh, I did here, and Luke, Luke is the only one that gives us an, an account of such things, and he does so from the perspective of a. Uh, of a, of a well-trained physician. And the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, by the way, Luke more, wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. More pages of the New Testament than any other writer and of great significance. He engages in no speculation. He draws no conclusions. He includes no theology, which is a matter of drawing conclusions from, from inferences and syllogisms. He states only the facts. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other man and states only the facts. He was a consummate historian and a physician. He begins in the first chapter saying he's writing to a, a government official of the Roman Empire, just like he did in the book of, of Acts, to give an account of what this strange, this strange thing that was overtaking all of the world, all of this 
civil law world, the cosmos of Rome. And uh, the folk in government didn't know what it was. And Luke did research and presented the facts. And that, of course, adds to the, at the common law of evidence, adds to the reliability of this account and these manuscripts under the rules of evidence of our common law. It says, moreover, chapter 1, verse 1, thoroughly fitting, fitting, given that many took upon hand to arrange up a diagnosis. That's the word he uses. It's a Greek word. That's what a physician would say. A diagnosis about the settled regular process having been fully carried out, carried out by us. According to the men having become from the first yield, watch this, autopsy, autopsy witnesses. There's another medical term from the Greek tongue, autopsy. Diagnosis, autopsy, and underservance of the proven claim given along to us. And to me, it was, and then he uses the Greek word dogma, it was dogma, having followed along each and all straightforward from top down to write to you pinpointedly. Now, dogma is a Greek word. What does it mean? A dogma is a statement of fact or a statement of what you say is fact without any supporting evidence for the moment, without any supporting. In other words, how did he, he gather these facts? He gives that later, but he says it's in the form of dogma. For instance, a decree of an emperor is a dogma. He doesn't say why. He just says, "Here's what I'm gonna. Here's what I'm gonna. What I'm gonna require." There's nothing wrong with the word dogma. I remember, um, I forget the fellow's name. But he's called the father Dewey. Tom, uh, Dewey. He was a left-wing wacko, the father of American mm-hmm. public education, mm-hmm. a godless, hateful man. And a man with no respect for other people, but and the father of socialism, what the term socialism in America. But he set forth his dogmas at one point. In other words, here is what I believe without giving you all the support of what, why I believe it. Just a dogma, a dogmatic statement. There's nothing again wrong with a dogma in the right context. It can be used negatively or positively. Here, the word is used positively. These are the things that I know to be true as a witness. I've gathered the evidence, having followed along each and all straightforward from the top downward to write to you pinpointedly. That means details, and Luke is detailed, uh, to arrange up, here it is again, a diagnosis about the settled regular process. And well, I said that already. A proven claim, he said, uh, the underservants of the proven claim, that's verse 2, given along to us. And then he says, uh, he says who he's writing to, most strong Theophilus. The reason he calls him most strong, that's a term of respect for government officials. And this is a Roman official of the Roman government. So that you might fully know firsthand about the untottering, proven claims. He says, the things that I'm saying are on good evidence. I'm just not stating it all right, right here. But the proven claims, he says, of which you, Theophilus, were orally catechized. In other words, Theophilus was raised facts behind more behind, uh, more understanding about what his faith is. And then he says, listen to this, verse 5, it happened in the days of Hero's son. Well, who's Hero's son? Well, that's the emperor. Under emperor, I said emperor, under emperor of the country, Judea. Under emperor, that means he has the full power of emperor in the province of Judea. 
a certain priest by name Zechariah out of a duty section days of his father he happens. That's his father. And his woman out of the daughters of Aaron. And her name Elizabeth. He was of the tribe of Levi. Now he goes into here. I won't read all this about how the gumption breath, the person of the gumption breath of God reveals to him the virgin birth of the woman he was betrothed to. No, the woman that Joseph was betrothed to. That's what it was. This guy's an old guy of the tribe of Levi. Well, he goes on down here and, uh, he gets down to about uh, verse, so I'm looking for a word, briefly talks about the uh, virgin birth. I'm not coming up with it real quick. Here we are. And it happened, uh, verse 40, verse 41 of chapter 1 of Luke. I'm reading, by the way, Roger, from the winterized translation of the Bible from the original tongues. I like to read it whenever I can because sometimes I catch a typographical error. Not to mention, I think it, it's a raw translation. A raw, that's what I call it, which is literal, of course, but more than that, it's, it's, un, it's uncooked as much as I can make it. Verse 41, And it happened as the woman Elizabeth heard the greeting of the bitter rebel. Now, Elizabeth was a, a cousin or a mother to the first cousin of Jesus Christ who came to be known as John the Baptist. The word Mary means bitter rebel. It's kind of odd, isn't it, that, <laughs> that this teenage girl who delivered the Messiah of God, her name means bitter rebel. The Bible never says why, and I don't know that she was. Matter of fact, everything we see about her is that she was not a bitter rebel. But that's what the word means. The maraz, a Hebrew word, bitter and rebel. Um, and talks here about John the Baptist. Uh, he was about five months older than Jesus, Jesus Christ, and he was the forerunner of God in human flesh to announce his coming uh, as dignitaries have announcement, uh, of course, yet today. Well, Mary, of course, uh, gives birth or, through a conception that is of God. Um, Mary conceived in her womb by the power, not of her husband, not by the seed of man, but by the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ was conceived from above. And all of the counterfeits of the messiahs of the world that are based upon what Rome calls Mary uh, came from Babylon, where Mary, that what we call Mariolatry was the same thing under Nimrod and Semiramis when Semiramis of Babylon, uh, 4,200 years ago, when uh, the devil himself counterfeited this cult of the worship of the mother and child. And all of the counterfeits of the Messiah of God that occurred before he was born and after have been counterfeits that have said that this ruler was conceived from the heavens, um, including, by the way, the emperor of Japan, the Nipponese, which means the ones born of the sun and the emperor was 142 generations. They believed in their faith and their God that he was 142 generations, uh, a descendant of the heavenly body, the sun. And of course, uh, the Egyptian emperor was that way. And all the scions of, 
counterfeits of the Messiah have been that way. All of the heroes of Genesis chapter 6 were like that. Said all of the Greek gods, if, if you remember from school, if you learn such things, were half man and half God. They were conceived by a god from the heavens and a, and a woman, for instance. That's the way uh, uh, Hercules and all those fellows were said to be. Well, those are all demonic eruptions of the true God in human flesh. Chapter 2, and it happened in those days. Here's that word again. That I'm pronouncing it just the way the Greek tongue pronounce it, pronounces it, dogma. In those days, a dogmatic decree went out from with Kaiser Augustus. The reason I say Kaiser, because that's the Anglo pronunciation of Caesar. Kaiser Augustus, each and every one of the city law world, to return tax enrollment. Now this tax enrollment, verse 2, return, first happened, Roger, we recognize here, the idea of a tax return. <laughs> it hadn't changed over the, over the centuries. This was a tax enrollment return. First happened while, while Cyrenius was governing in the country Syria. And each and all were traveling to return a tax enrollment, each man into their borough. And moreover, gather up, that's what Joseph means, to gather up. Remember, he was the one that gathered up the, the income tax from the Egyptian people a right. long time before this. Gather up, went up from Round Lake. That's what, that's what uh, Galilee means. It's a Hebrew word. It means round, round lake out of Sprout Borough into the country Judea, into David's borough that is subpoenaed by name Breadhouse, that's Bethlehem, means Breadhouse, through namely him being out of David's household, that's David, king of Israel, and fatherhood. And the return tax enrollment with bitter rebel, that's Mary, the one having been betrothed to him, she being swollen, and this is the way the Greek text says it, she being swollen, Swollen, just swollen. And that's the way they said pregnant. A good translation would be swollen with child. Moreover, it happened in them being there, she was as big as a whale, as some men would say. She was ready to deliver. She couldn't tie her shoes. And one of those kind of deals. And the, the days for her birthing were filled out. She was had come to term. And she birthed her firstborn son. Jesus Christ broke the matrix of the womb, a special position under the law of God, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And that's a good word, swaddling. It's an old word, but that's what it means. By the way, Roger, when I was a little boy, about in first grade, we, we uh, reenacted at school, we reenacted all this, and we all played different parts. And it was my job as a little boy, um, very young, of course, five years old, or yeah, five. I was to, I recited this section from the King James Bible. And I remember that was my first encounter with the word swaddling. <laughs> but I said it very particularly and loudly. I don't know if I pronounced it right. But she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. That's a, a box that you put hay in for critters to eat out of. Thoroughly because no place was theirs in the inn and in the same countryside. Now watch this. In the same countryside, shepherds were overnighting in the open. Again, this is a raw translation of the Greek text, and so it's a little different, but I think it's, hey, well, it's more to the point. 
And in the same countryside, shepherds were overnighting in the open, keeping watch for their flock of the night. And an agent of the Elodial landlord, the Elodial landlord, stood over them, and the Elodial landlord's weighty worth shined around about them, and they were scared. As they say in the Wabash Valley, they were scared. <laughs> a forcibly great scare, it says. And the agents, and I found a typo here, Roger. That's why I like to read this, and I'm going to fix it right now. If uh, You can't get rid of typos. I don't care how hard you try, but you can get them down to a minimum. Right. A forcibly great scare, and the agent of God spelt it out to them. Be not shied away, for in fact, behold, a good spell, forcibly great gladness is to you, which shall be to the militia. And by the way, that's what the word the people means in the Bible. Every time you see in the Old Testament, the word, the phrase, the people or my people, or even in the New Testament, and it refers to a band of armed men, armed men. And as all the folk that signed our founding documents said, and I've got the quotes in, in uh, the book, Excellence of the Common Law, all of them made the point, and the book on the militia, all of them made the point that the, the people are the militia. And the word the people rose from the Bible and from our Puritan forebears, and they, they recognize that that is the word of the Old Testament in the Hebrew, ha'am, ha'am, that's with the definite article, ami, with the possessive singular, my militia, that is um, the able-bodied men. And it is the able-bodied men that have the two fundamental responsibilities of government. And even after they're not able-bodied, they maintain one of those responsibilities. And there are only two fundamental responsibilities of government that God has given men. Number one, to defend against enemies foreign, the willingness to take up arms. That's the job of the militia. And second, to defend the law of the land. The first is to defend, to defend the land. The second is to defend the law of the land. That means to be willingness to serve on the jury. And that's why our ancient oath, our ancient oath is part of our Constitution, and we are all familiar with it, to defend the Constitution, which calls itself the law of the land, from enemies foreign and domestic. That's the two fundamental duties of government according to the Bible and according to our common law. Uh, defense, armed defense, and, and defense of the law of the land which shall be to everyone. Now, great note, he says, so-and-so was ruling in Syria, and so-and-so was ruling in, in Judea, and all these important officials. And then it says what? Down here, it says, and there were shepherds overnighting in the open, keeping watch for their flock of the night. Now, who remembers the names of any of these other Roman dignitaries? Nobody, hardly anybody. But a lot of people remember these shepherds whose names aren't even given. And that's the way God works. And God will remember you more than he remembers all these filthy perverts in government. That ever, Their names are in front of us all now. It'll be in five years, people won't even remember who they are. But the Bible says that God will remember his people. And he will look out for them and he will set them on high and they will rule with him. They will rule with him. Keep that in mind. Now that's what the book says. It says that over and over and over and over and over. Now, I've got two choices. I can believe what the, the newspapers, well, not the newspapers anymore, but uh, what the news says, and the, or I can believe what this book says, what's important here. Some faggot from Ukraine that stands in front of Congress in a sweatshirt and says he needs money to 
to fight people that we really aren't enemies of? Which am I going to believe? Which am I going to go with? Well, I've already made my choice. I hope you've made yours. And the less you listen to that tripe and that trash, I happen to know about it. Somebody mentioned it to me this morning. I'm not going to take time to go listen to it. It's meaningless. It's tripe. It's trash. And it will prevent you prevent you from being the effective enemy of evil that you want to, would otherwise want to be. Give attention to this book. The shepherds were watching their night. They were night in the open. That's what's important. And the agent of God spelled it out to them. They were scared, scared spitless, as they say at home. Which shall be, that's what the, the fellows at church say. They don't say it the other way. They try to find a way to make it a euphemism. That's like my uncle Frank used to say, son of a bib, son of a biscuit eater. He would never say it the other way. 11, verse 11, because today was birthed to you in David's borough, a safener, a borough is a walled town, by the way, a safener, he happens, which is Messiah, a loyal land lord. Safener, he happens, this is his title. This is the title of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. The word Jesus is a Hebrew word, Jesus in the Greek, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Joshua, Joshua, anglicized, Germanized in the Germanic tongues, Joshua. But the word means safener, he happens. He happens safener, who's he happens? That's the holy name of God as it is called, Yehoha. Yehoha, three syllables. Again, anglicized, Jehovah. And it means safener with ayah on the end. Uh, Yeshua, that's safener. He happens, which is, he says what it is, Messiah. That means the one besmeared with oil. What is oil in the Bible? Oil in the symbol, and it's always a symbol of the person of the gumption breath of God. Oil is a symbol of the person of the gumption breath of God. Remember when Jesus Christ's ancestor, David, king of Israel, was chosen. When God chose him to be king, he sent Samuel to pour oil on over his head as he knelt down as a young boy. As a boy, as a shepherd out in the field. And he, as the Hebrew text says, here's the way the Hebrew reads, he made his head fat with oil. He just poured the whole thing on him. As a symbol, it is not efficacious. It doesn't do anything physically, but it is our recognition of who he is. And Jesus Christ is the one that has received that recognition. Mishak, that means to be besmeared or be have your head made fat because oil is poured through your hair and on your head. Elodia, landlord, and this sign is to you. You all shall find papoose, a papoose. Now, that's the best English word we have. That's an English word, of course, taken in from our experience here in America, but that's what he was. He was wrapped tight in these swaddling clothes, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly betided with the lawgiver's agent. Many armed forces from the sky. Now, the old King James says, the host of heaven. Sounds kind of ostentatious, don't, don't it? The host from heaven. I remember that when I was a boy saying this in school. 
the host from heaven? Well, the word host means host. That's the old uh, Anglo word, hostile. Hostiles from heaven. The armed forces from the sky, ballyhooing. That's what the word means about the lawgiver. Spelling it out. Deemed worth their singing. These armed creatures in the sky, decked out for war. They're singing deemed worth in the unmatchably high lawgiver. And upon land, God arranged right. That's God arranging the jurisdictions among men. That's God's kingdom. That's what Basileia means. Among men of good thought. And it happened as the lawgiver's agents went away from them into and deeper into the sky is the idea. They disappeared. The shepherds were talking unto one another of like kind. We should go through, of course, as far as bread house. That's Bethlehem. Beth house, Lachem, bread, bread house, Bethlehem. And should see this unproven claim, the one having happened. See, it was unproven to them. Hey, these angels, these agents of God decked out for war, announced it to them, but they didn't prove it. And so the word that is, that uh, Luke uses here is the word for an unproven claim. What is the it is the word rhema. Rhema doesn't mean it's not true. It just means no evidence has yet been presented for the truth of it. Unproven claim, the one having happened, which the elodial landlord, that's who God is. He is the elodial landlord. It's all about land, friends. All of it, all of the Bible is about the entrust, the trust settlement and the entrusted property of the trust settlement. It is land, all the land of this place we called earth. We call, call earth, uh, made known to us firsthand. And they came, having hastened and found both the bitter rebel, that's Mary, and gather up, that's Joseph, and the papoose, that's Jesus Christ, lying in the manger. Moreover, having beheld it, they made known firsthand about the unproven claim, the one having been told to them about this youngin. What youngin? Well, the one in the manger there, in the swaddling clothes. Was it in the manger at this point? No. As a matter of fact, I don't know that, well, we'll get to that later. Moreover, having beheld it, they made known firsthand about the unproven claim, the one having been told to them about this youngin. Oh, I said that. And each and all the men having heard it, flabbergasted about the things having been told unto them under authority of the shepherds. However, the bitter rebel, that's Mary, safe unproven claims and threw them together in her heart yearning. She didn't understand everything that was happening here. She understood some because she had been told when she conceived. But she is still trying to figure it all out. Just a young girl, friends. How much can a young girl figure out? Oh, they're smart. But the problem with young folk is they don't have enough conscience. They don't have enough enough gathered facts and experience to, to really evaluate things like they could do when they're older. And the shepherds returned under authority, acknowledging the lawgiver's weighty worth and ballyhooing. Now they're ballyhooing about each and all things they had beheld, like as it was told to them. And when eight days were filled out for his D4 skinning, the law of God said eight days, and you D4 skin the Israelite, 
Because if he wasn't de-foreskinned, he couldn't take, couldn't participate in what? The Passover supper, the Lord's supper, which we still celebrate today in our churches. It's been perverted. The Romans have perverted it into what they call mass, the Babylonian mass. It is not a sacrifice, as they say. No, it is a supper. It is not a sacrifice. His name was called Safener He Happens, the one being called under the authority of the lawgiver's agent, before he was bred in the womb. That's what it says. And when the days of their cleansing, according to the law of draw out, the law of Moses, that means his name means draw out, were filled out, they brought him into Jerusalem to present him to the Elodial landlord. Accordingly, it has been put to writing. In the Elodial Landlord's Law, that's the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, and they say in the law, it says, each and every mannish child opening the womb shall be subpoenaed by name, set apart clean to the Elodial Landlord. I make a big deal about this because the law of God never changes, friends. This Jesus Christ fulfilled this, but the law of God hasn't changed on this note. The first boy to open the matrix of the womb has a calling of God upon him. He may go crazy. He may be stupid when he's young. But God, even if he never straightens up, God will get what he wants out of him. He has been subpoenaed, or as they say in the Wabash Valley, subpoenaed by name. Subpoenaed by by name. When you see the word called in the Bible, C-A-L-L-E-D, that's the Anglo-Dane, Anglo-Saxon word for subpoena. (laughs) Called. And the Old Testament, this word like ours, it means called. It means subpoenaed. And remember, I add the word by name, which is redundant, because a subpoena is always specific to the person. Always. And this word, ecclesia, Kalos is part of the word ekklesia. It is the word from the Greek-Roman tradition of law and government for a subpoena. The word subpoena is a Greek word. And we use it in our common law tradition, our law of the land tradition, because we subpoena, 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 that's the way lawyers say it, people to petition or to testify in court or, yeah, to give testimony And that's, of course, what the firstborn child is called to do. Uh, Samson was called to do that. He never did get straightened up with his appetite for whores. He loved whores. He was always bedding some whore. But don't think God didn't use him and he didn't have a special calling on his life. His special calling cost him his life. But he, he, God got out of him what he wanted to get out of him. And don't forget, friends, he will do the same thing to you if you're firstborn. But add to that, if, you, if, you're, if you're born from above, he'll get it out of you. So just go along with him peaceably. Don't make it hard like Samson had his eyes gouged out, put to the labor, the slave labor of an animal, grinding grain like a, like a donkey, as a blind man chained to a grind, grindstone. Don't make it hard for yourself. Just make it easy. Well, verse 24, we talked about that, the offerings and all. And his parents and the young one was born. And uh, uh, Luke, of course, here 
gives the the uh, complete and detailed account of the birth of the Messiah of God being um, qualified as a as a physician to do so to evaluate what happened here and his testimony is clear virgin born friends virgin born and Luke Luke is an expert witness in this respect also because he is a medical doctor you know we haven't improved I've had doctors tell me this we haven't improved much in the modern world over what the Greek world did develop in the area of medicine. And you can go back and read the writings of Galen, for instance. Galen, G- some people would say Galen, I think, G-A-L-E-N. I've read his writings, a Greek physician. And when I read it, I say, shucks, I, this is, um, well, what else could a guy need to know to deal with the pro- problems that people have, broken bones, uh, what do they tell you? What do they tell you when you have a cold? Well, you, you drink grandma's chicken soup, and uh, you know, if feed a feed a fever, starve a cold, and all those kind of things. And I've got if I've got that backwards, somebody will correct me. But we haven't improved much upon that. This whole COVID thing is a ruse. People think they've discovered something. No, we don't even know what the common cold is, friends. Uh, the Greeks had as much under their belt in understanding how to deal with problems, and maybe more, in some ways. Although I recognize that surgery has taken a lot of technological advances, but the point I'm making is Luke was a highly trained physician and he was no slouch. And so he was qualified to deal with evaluating the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Well, I wanted to read that, Roger, because it is Christmas. What should we do? Should we go whole hog into the Babylonian Christmas tradition? No, we shouldn't do that. Not but should we fight about it? No, we needn't fight about it. You just yourself stand fast. You should know what what they call Christmas is all about. It's about the birth of the child of God that men look for. Uh, God, Emmanuel, which means Hebrew tongue, with us God. It's a sentence. And I know it's a phrase, with us God, Emmanuel. And uh, his birth was foretold through the virgin. You know, Roger, one other thing, when, of course, the Old King James says virgin. The other old translation said virgin. Well, by the time we get, there wasn't any translation of the Bible that was translated in the English-speaking world that had any traction or any notice at all, except the Revised Standard Version came along in 1881. And the Church of England decided it was time for a new translation because they had a couple thousand discovered ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament, and they thought they could be even more particular. King James translators only had about a half a dozen. Now, I know that there are problems with the people that promoted those manuscripts, and I I understand all that. Westcott and Hort were obviously uh, questionable characters. uh, But manuscript evidence, friends, is just that. It's, It's evidence. It's evidence. Anything in writing, the Bible itself you have in your hand, what I'm reading, is evidence of what God said. It is a record. All records are evidence of something that happened or something said or something that was agreed to. And the Bible, the manuscripts of the Bible are evidence. And so in 1881, thereabouts, came out with the Revised Standard Church, the Church of England, and they called it, as they did before, the authorized version because it was the official version ordained by the head of the church 
in England. Well, who's the head of the church in England? The crown, whoever holds the crown. Well, they, they said virgin. Virgin in the Old Testament, Isaiah, what is it, 714? And then the New American Standard Version came out. Some of the people in 1901 that were on the the uh, English team, they had Americans on the British, or I should say British team, translators that were revising. All they were doing in 1881 was revising the King James. They were not translating from the original tongues necessarily. They paid attention to the original tongues, but they were correcting, not correcting, revising the King James on what they believed was more manuscript evidence. Then the new American, or the American revised version, American standard version, American standard version came out in 1901. Then the, the, there was a revised version that came out. That was pretty good in a lot of ways, uh, but they never got rid of the old ancient these and those, and that was in the 1950s. Well, when that version came out, here's what I'm driving at. When that version came out, in the Old Testament, they did not translate the Hebrew word Alma, virgin. They translated it young maid. Now, that made people come unglued, utterly unglued. So much so that in uh, Europe, that all of the soldiers that were stationed there after World War II, of course, Americans, there were thousands of them, the officer in charge uh, forbade that any man there have a copy of that new translation of the Bible that said made. Now, I don't know why people got so upset. The word virgin and the word made mean the same thing. Made is the Anglo-Dane, Anglo-Saxon word for virgin. Made. But people didn't see it that way for some reason. I suppose they thought the meaning had been transformed over the centuries, and maybe it had, and people forgot about it. But people all over America, too, went ballistic over that, and it ruined the sale of that translation. Well, they interviewed the people that said that they translated it that way, and they said, well, it could mean uh, uh, just a young girl, they said. Well, is that true? Well, yeah, that's, that can be true given certain context, but fundamentally it's not necessarily true. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it, it was clearly true. It clearly states that she is a virgin. A virgin, you know, the Parthenon. The Parthenon, that big fancy building in Athens. It's called Parthenon because Parthenon is from the root word for a Greek word in the Greek New Testament, meaning virgin. And uh, the the temple prostitutes, uh, the building was named after them, them because men would go there and they would copulate it's all over the world and it's the basis for all the abuses of Roman priests but this is what they really believe this is Babylonian uh, they believe that and the, the Nazis did the same thing by the way they got perverted and the SS troops yes they did um, doctrine, yeah they took on the doctrines of the um, uh, the um, what was those fellows in Greek the war, Greek warriors that were so famous that wouldn't cohabit with women, they said it would pollute them. So they, Spart- they, Sparti- uh, Spartacus. they uh, populated Spart- with each other. Spartacus. I the mean, uh, uh, no, it was... Uh, yeah, the Spart- Spartans. They were, Spartans. They were all, Spartans, yeah. Yeah. They were all, all sodomites. That got to be the popular thing because they said we're pure warriors and we don't want to... 
copulate with women because we'll use them just to make babies and we'll use women. And here was the doctrine that I was driving at. Uh, they use women. And when they, when they would copulate with women, they said that uh, this dislodged in their bodies sin and all that sin was put in the woman. And in some places of the world, then they'd take them when they got done with them after a few years and just uh, kill them and dump them out in, in uh, what we call Mexico today near uh, Mexico City and Lake Texacoco. That's where they do- uh, drop hookers after they were used up, which didn't take long. And they said they were filled. And that was a place of sewage. And so they dumped their bodies. In. Listen to me close. False religion is filthy. It's dirty. It's mean. It's cruel. And if you're involved in it, it will take you further than you ever wanted to go. And it will keep the, keep you in that place longer than you ever want to stay. That's what false religion does. Don't think it's innocent to tamper. Well, I know I'm a Romanist and I do a little of this. I'm a Mormon. I do No, that stuff will take you. You get around those kinds of things and those kinds of people and you'll get sucked away into an evil that will destroy you, your family. You become part of the problem, friends. And it's big out there. And don't think it isn't the foundation of all the problems among mankind. It is. Sex perversion is on the rise like it never has been. Pedophilia, abuse of... As long... I was just thinking, Roger, today. As long as we have uh, women abandoning their roles and men abandoning their roles, and who's going to answer for it? Men are going to answer for it. The the more we have the Congress filled and the state legislatures filled with women, the more we have in the upfront positions on the newscast showing their legs and and um, being the news babes more men are going to talk like girls these are the subtle things that eat us up you wonder you know men are men and women are going to talk when they're children they're going to talk like what they hear in the mass media they're going to talk like what they hear at home they're going to talk like like what they hear at school and I notice increasingly, then the effeminacy of that kind of talk is overwhelming us. The devil is a smart SOB, son of a Belial. He's clever beyond belief. And he will destroy. And what he wants to destroy, I like to call it, he wants to destroy mannishness. And why does he want to destroy mannishness, manliness, manic character? Manish characteristics and traits because he's not stupid. He knows that the covenant, the trust settlement of God is with men. It's with men. And that's the foundation of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, etc. And um, women participate in it. That's true. But the men are the foundation. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, the trust settlement there that was a to mend that problem. That's the teaching of the Bible. Land, of course, has everything to do with that. Women have a special place in that arrangement. All of these things are played out in the Bible, but the devil himself has to destroy what we call today manhood. And don't think he isn't trying to do it. That's why little boys all over the country are increasingly on Ritalin. Not little girls, little boys. Put them on Ritalin. We got to get rid of this male aggression. That's why Mary Baker Eddy, Patterson Glover Fry, the founder, she was married that many times, the founder of Christian Science, uh, hated men. That's why they worship her. Seventh day Adventist, what was her name? Ellen G. White, 
Uh, her writings are put on the elevation of the scriptures. She hated what she hated was the sexual aggressions of men, the sexual aggressions of men. That's why she said we need to eat better. The reason men are sexually aggressive. See, that's what she couldn't stand. <laughs> we got to make little boys, nice little boys. We've got to get rid of this aggression. We've got, we've got to get men to quit eating rich food, meat, pies and cakes. And that's how the whole tradition of good eating, though, got started with the Seventh-day Adventists, but they still worship her. Don't think they don't. I don't care what they tell you. It's, um, it's a perversion of the fundamental of the trust settlement of God with men. Uh, Romanism is a tradition of effeminacy. is a tradition of effeminacy. What are you telling me? The Roman church and the priesthood, the, those aren't effeminates. Pedophiles, they've been that way for centuries. They're not even allowed to marry women. So what they do, they have and have had for centuries a harem of concubines all over the world. Or they, they have uh, little children that they abuse. What, what else would you expect to tell people they can't get married? It's going to draw that kind of people, and it does. The seminaries Rome have always draw, drawn men that were uh, prone to sodomy and child abuse. And then people are silly enough to put their children in the choirs and all that. This is madness, Roger, but this is true of every... Judaism is a feminacy taken to the extreme hill. That's why pedophilia runs rampant among Islamic men. I've always done that. And abuse of women, by the way, in Islam, of course, abuse them. Um, they're treated different by far, by far than men, to the point of chopping their heads off if you don't like them. And don't think they aren't doing that all over the Islamic world. I'm telling you, friends, there is no sanity among mankind without the maker of heaven and earth, his Messiah, Jesus Christ, and their revelation from themselves, from the Godhead to men, we call the laws of nature, and the laws of nature is God, the Bible. Well, Roger, that's enough for a little bit. Now, I did want to read that account, since that's what we should do at Christmas time. And to say, too, Roger, real quickly, I didn't get to tell you I'm running so fast. I need to leave a half hour early today. Okay. Well, so no problem. Uh, come the bottom of the seventh hour, I've got to cut out to, to do what i got to do. But okay. uh, I'll, I'll yield up here for a minute Brent, and let you have the Did board. you ever see that bumper sticker that said, My karma ran over my dogma? <laughs> Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's a, a interesting. I, lo, I, I really oh, find Lord, it fascinating when you quote out of your own Bible because you've substituted all these things, and it takes a little bit for people to catch up, you know, on Gather Up and and, and all the different names that you identify uh, these key people with. Um. It, yes, it does. Go ahead. Um, I, I, for the audience who may not know, the history of this was debauchery in Rome, and they called it Saturnalia because of Saturn. And it was a c couple of weeks, I guess, or longer, where open fornication in the streets and drunkenness and lascivity. How do you say that word? Lascivic. Lascivic. I can't think of it. Lasciviousness. That's that's the one I was looking yeah. for. Uh, all that and and that 
basically is what we're celebrating here at this time of year. I think it's also instructive in the New Testament, you or the Old Testament, you'd know where this is, Brent. It instructs you, to, I mean, instructs you exactly not to bring trees into your house and decorate them. You know where Say that again, Roger. In the Old Testament somewhere, I don't know the location, it says don't bring trees into your house and decorate them. You've run across that, I'm sure. Oh, that's in, yeah, that's in Jeremiah. Chapter 10. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Yeah, where he talks about the Christmas tree and bedecking it. And, and of course, it's in the context of uh, what the Israelites were doing that was Babylonian and idolatrous. Of course, in our Nordic Germanic world, um, our culture, which is what we have here in America primarily, it comes down to St. Nicholas and uh, the Christmas tree, which the Germanic people even ordained. Of course, the reason the Christmas tree was important, apparently it was imported into into Israel from the mountains uh, north of them to use them, but the Christmas tree, as we call it, is evergreen. It's not deciduous. It's green year-round, and so it fit in with the the idea of uh, rejuvenating life, never dies, and uh, looking for some symbol that God never authorized. See, here's the difference in Christianity. We had a lady come on the other day and I said something about the idolatry in the Lutheran church. And she said, wait, 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 what, what do you mean idolatry idols? And I'm, I'm a Missouri synod Lutheran. We don't have any idols in our church. And of course, I'm glad they don't. But, uh, even the more fundamental conservatives, the Wisconsin synod and, and, uh, some of the others. And I, Christ, I consider those folk doctrinally, doctrinally to be, Christian brothers and sisters there. We all suffer with allowing ourselves to get involved in things that, that aren't good. But the Lutherans have a history from the days of Martin Luther of idolatry. And yes, in some of the more conservative synods, uh, the crucifix is part of what they do in church. That is clearly, of all things, idolatry. You know, the, the, the Ten Commandments say, uh, Second Commandment, Thou shalt not make unto me, unto me, any graven image. No likenesses of God, no likenesses of Jesus Christ. He he forbids all of that. La- I, I laugh sometimes and shake my head. The Calvary chapels, the Calvary chapel movement has been such a popular movement in America. Well, they're, they're at bottom, their symbol is idolatry. It's a, it's a, a scribbling thing, looks like like a dove coming down to be a symbol of God, the gumption breath of God, the person of the spirit of God coming down as it came down upon Jesus Christ. Well, that's idolatry, friends, of, of all things. You know, there are a lot of things that are idolatry that are not as blatant and obvious of making a picture of Jesus Christ and putting it up in your church or an image. I was just reading this morning, I've mentioned this, before Elizabeth I, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, her first public pronouncement was to strip all the walls and ceilings of all the churches in England of everything and plaster them white. And they were just filled, of course, with idols, pictures and ions and objects of worship of all sorts. Oh, what, what happened to her? Well, the, the Pope of Rome excommunicated Elizabeth I. 
try it. You know, the Rome is a paper tiger. It tries to intimidate people into thinking, oh, you're going to go to hell. If you don't take any chances, you and you've got to participate in all this idolatry, this mass, the, the idol worship of the mass, and on and on and on it goes. Uh, don't let that scare. The, the Bible is the final word, friends, not the Pope of Rome. And the Pope of Rome, though, says, no, no. Pope of Rome says, I'm the final word. you got to do what I say. I get to interpret the Bible. I'll tell you what it means. I find it just fascinating. I don't understand what all goes on inside of people. But you meet people that are raised Romanist, but all of them I meet, at some point, they have this feeling that the Bible is final, but they're afraid to say it, but they do want to read it. You see, the big division between Rome and, and non-Rome is, true Christianity is, that Rome says that the Bible is the product of the church. True Christianity says, no, the church is the product of the Bible. Um, the church to Rome is not the people that go to Mass. No, they... Their doctrine is clear. The church is the priesthood. And they say it is the priesthood that produced the Bible. And we say, no, no, no. The Bible produced produced all the apostles, produced anything good in men. It comes from the word of God. Everything God does, he does through his word, the seed of the word of God. Uh, and that's one of the grand ways to express the difference between the two. But don't let them scare you. Recognize the Bible is final. Give attention to the Bible. Understand what it says. Spend your life doing that. It will free you from the governments of men that are clearly sex perverts at bottom. And if anybody listening is a Roman priest, you just need to get out. Well, you say, I'm not a pedophile. I'm sincere. Our priest is sincere. If you're participating in the system, you're part of the problem. And you're... you're um, Brooking, going along with what's going on. Same thing is true of Judaism. Same thing is true of Islam. Same thing is true of Mormonism. And same thing is true of what so, some so-called Protestant churches have gone off, and a lot of them have. They're, they're woke now, and they're ordaining women in their churches. A clear violation of clear violation of God's trust settlement and what he wants to accomplish. If a woman abandons her role, um, she becomes part of the problem. Just he becomes part of the problem in our country. Well, Roger, again, uh, I need to take a breather. Have you got? Uh, well, I was just thinking as you're you talking there, about. I, I'm here, obviously. Um, I was thinking about my experiences in Argentina. Uh, I've never really been exposed to too many Catholics or Catholicism throughout my whole life. Uh, but when I was down there, of course, and I was seeing that young lady for a couple of years, and I think Argentina's 96% Catholic. You know, it's written into the Constitution. It's a Catholic country. And uh, we would go off. She had a place up on the lake. It was real nice, close. And we'd go off up there on the weekends. And one night, we're coming back on Sunday, and uh, she she didn't attend the main Catholic church in town. They had another spinoff and, uh, that she attended. And she needed to go meet her son who would come into town or something. And we were late. So I, I ended up going to Mass, you know, just because of the logistics and everything. 
And I was shocked. I don't think I'd ever been in, in I don't I think it's the only one I've ever been in that I can think back on. And it was like a seance to me. I mean, it's this big room, it's all dark, there's these guys going around with all this incense and doing all these chants and it was it was something like out of a seance to me. It was very strange. And of course as I've related to Brent previous times, I was down there nine years, you know, and through just meeting people and talking and whatnot, every female, they, no, not that I had anything romantic going with them, but every female, and you get into this conversation, they never ask if you believe in God. They never ask if you believe in Jesus. They always ask to the, to the person, do you believe in the Virgin? Okay, And that's their whole center on their connection with their religion. And it just, uh, it was a heck of an experience for me, you know, uh-huh. but, uh, I could sit back, uh, like without, yeah, well, they're, they're only, it was mm-hmm. weird, you know, and then a mm-hmm. couple of times because, uh, this girl's family is very influential in town, one of the top families in town. And, uh, so they were real tied mm-hmm. into this particular sect that they were involved with and there's a couple of family gatherings i was at where the priests would come you know to to the to the gathering and uh man this it was this one guy that was a the head priest i guess bigger guy and this one little faggot that was always tagging around with him uh, and it was just weird. I was always uncomfortable. Uh, one night we were in her house and, the, and annually, I guess this priest stops by the house. And, um, it was like when they came into the room, man, it was like that Arctic chill that's hitting you guys right now. Okay. To me. And, uh, of course I was dating her. Well, there's and only, he wanted, there's you know, only two. well, they wanted to introduce yeah. me to him. And I remember shaking his hand and all that. And it, it was just like a frigid experience for me. So, well, if you're not used to it, you become sensitive. If the spirit of God dwells in a man or a woman, they're sensitive to demonism. And man, uh, no man or a woman has any choice but two. He will either worship and serve some part of creation, which is idol worship, some created thing, living or dead, whatever, or he will serve the creator, the living God. That's the, that's the only options any man has. And the worship of idols will come out in the devotion to wealth and materialism. It always comes out the same. Then that, if that becomes the focus, the materialism, then the only thing that matters is materialism. Uh, there is no spiritual life. It's gone. Uh, for all uh, all Rome, Rome is, as an example, and again, I've told people this. Why are you always talking about Rome? Because Rome is shoved forward as a visible a visible expression of the law of Babylon. Now, during the days of Jesus Christ, the visible expression of the laws of Babylon that was so powerful and so visible was Babylonian Judaism. Now, Babylonian Judaism is still visible. It's still powerful. And I can talk about that too, and sometimes I do, because Jesus Christ focused on Judaism as the great, as the great system of, of Satan himself among his own people and also around the world even at that time he even said remember he said uh, you speaking to the Pharisees he said you compass that means you travel about land and sea you spend a lot of money and a lot of time just to make one proselyte 
to your religious point of view. And then once he becomes a proselyte, that means a follower of your religious point of view, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Now that, that shows a couple of things. Number one, Judaism will take in anybody. You don't have to claim to be an Israelite to be a Jew. In fact, we, uh, we see that clearly all over the world today. And he even said, even Jesus Christ said, you use your religion to encompass all people of the world. There's proof of that now. Uh, we see it all over. Then also that they become sons of hell. That's uh, quite a statement coming from uh, God himself in human flesh, the savior of mankind, twice the sons of hell. Should we should we pay attention to that and uh, say, well, who spend our time with? Who should we spend our time supporting? Who should we avoid and just stay away from? And that's pretty much what he says to do. He doesn't say attack. Uh, we've talked about this on this show before. It's uh, worth talking about. This is the great, the great mistake of uh, Nazi Germany. They they had a good plan. They said, hey, if you want to go to the Holy Land, we'll ship you out uh, free of expense, all your household goods. They tried that for a while. They tried other things. Um, eventually, um, Jewish people became fair game. They threw them out of their homes and they imprisoned them. Of course. I like to make point out too at this point. The reason was for uh, Christian reasons, but they had turned the Nazi party and the the leadership had turned thoroughly pagan by that time, and they were based out of the, out of southern southern Germany, which was heavily Roman Catholic. And of course, Rome supported Nazism for that reason because Hitler himself was raised that way in Austria, Bavaria region. But they got so they were doing things they shouldn't be doing. And they didn't do what the Bible said to do to deal with the problem. They called it the Jewish problem. Uh, You try to deal with the Jewish problem by saying, well, we're just going to kill as many as we can or jail them. Uh, That won't work. Uh, I think that's proof positive. You know, it's funny, though, how people in America criticize them for doing that. When here in America, during that same time, we were putting Japanese people and Italian people in prison camps. Right. Isn't that amazing? And yes. then, and then complain like the the Germans are the bad guys. We and we didn't put German people in prison camps in World War One or World War Two. German people of German descent. This is the confusion of politics. So what do we do if there's that much confusion? We go back to this book and we discover what it is God wants us to do, the thoughts He wants us to think, and how He wants us to impose, how He wants us to approach the problem of evil. And evil comes in. And the at bottom at the at its foundation in what we call false religion, that's where it comes. The Bible tells us that's where evil government comes from. It comes from false religion. You can't be neutral, friends, in this in this war that has been going on since the days of the founding of the city no, of Babylon. No, you can't. You got to choose sides. You're not going to survive in the end. I don't care what it looks like now. Well, back to you, Roger. I'll just say you can't you can't put one foot in each camp and survive, or at least with your sanity. Um, let me let me see if there's anybody on the board that wants to say anything <laughs> about what you've uh, gone over this morning. Anybody got a comment or question for Brent? I guess that means no. So, uh, yeah, hold it. There's somebody. I think, hold on. A couple people came in. I heard a female. And I think I heard Pat, and I'm going to defer to the female. So, who, thank you, Roger. Wasn't Christmas illegal in the states up until the 1850s? 
Christmas was illegal in Puritan New England, and then it was frowned upon, and well, nobody cared much about it until Charles Charles Dickens wrote the the, the novel, the story Christmas Carol. That was the story about Scrooge and all all that, and then it became popular. And we had talked before about when Washington crossed the Delaware, yes, uh, to attack the German Hessians. Uh, he did that on Christmas Eve, and the reason he did it on Christmas Eve was because the Germans on the continent of Europe, Germany, we're talking about, and uh, the Netherlands, Christmas has been, always been a big deal. It's been a big deal, but it never was in England. And the, re- the reason, well, it, it got so it wasn't in England because the Puritan party, the Puritans were the ones that wanted to follow the Bible. They were Anglicans. They never left the Church of England officially, but they said, we've got to get rid of all this Romish, all this Popish stuff in the church, all these idols. And, and so when they did come to America in New England, they outlawed Christmas. And uh, it has been a tradition in the English-speaking world since the Reformation that Christmas is not a big deal because clearly it's all Babylonian. It's a worse, an attempt to take Christianity into the realm of Babylonianism. Um, which fundamentally is worship of the heavens, and it all then equates with Easter. The timing of Easter has to do with the heavenly bodies and when they move and the equinox and all that stuff. Right. And it's not part of the Bible. Now, here's the fundamental difference that needs to be brought up that's seldom ever brought up. Um, When uh, the Reformation occurred in Britain, or uh, in Europe, Martin Luther was God's, man that he chose to make this uh, to make this thing happen and and he didn't know what was happening he didn't want to leave the rome he they forced him out and then things begin to kick off and he began to say wait a minute the bible's final not the pope and those kind of things and then in germany and um, what happened was uh, they had what they call iconoclast an iconoclast event where people were listening to luther teach the bible and then the idea got started was well if there's only two options here, either idolatry or the Bible. Either we fall down and worship created things, or we fall down and worship the creator. And all we can know about the creator, he has given us in the laws of nature, and the laws of nature is God written. So there became a movement across uh, Saxony where Luther lived, burning all the images and icons in the churches and piling them. And it became mania. And uh, the leaders in Germany, Luther was very influential at that time. And they came to him and said, what should we do? And he said, this is madness. You got to stop it. This is disrespectful and madness. You got to stop it. And so they went, sent troops in and a lot of people were killed that were doing this. And ever since then, ever since then, um, since then, um, Lutheranism has been tolerant of idolatry to a degree that the rest of Protestantism hasn't been. Now, there are two movements in Protestantism. One is called, uh, we call it the Lutheran Lutheran movement, Lutheranism. And the other one is the Reformed tradition. So the same thing happened in Scotland during the Reformation that happened in Germany. Uh, They started cleaning the churches out of idols pictures, icons, all sorts. I call it Jesus junk. It's just junk. And the Bible forbids it. 
Well, they threw it out in front of the cathedrals of the large cities, Edinburgh and uh, Glasgow, and then out of the little churches in the smaller towns. And they threw all that out in front of the churches into what they called the, the, the phantom. You know, profane. Profane means that which is in front of the church. They threw it out in the phantom, the area in front of the church. That's the profane area. And they burned it, all of it. Well, in Scotland, uh, the leader of the Reformation there, again, he didn't ask for the job, but he was shoved into it with John Knox. He said, that's good. Get crash. That'll change our country. Therein lies the difference between what happened in Lutheranism on the continent when it comes to idolatry and what happened in the English-speaking world. And I told you a while ago about Elizabeth. Elizabeth ordered all the idols removed. She was head of the Church of England, removed them from the walls and seen plain uh, plain white. And that, by the way, you see little things like that that you don't think about or aren't talked about much. That's why I grew up in a little tiny church house out there in the middle of nowhere in the Wabash Valley, and our ceilings were bare. Why is that? What happened way back on the other side of the pond a few days before? That's why we lived in America the way we did. God worked through that kind of that those kind of people to do those kind of things, and they weren't they weren't good people. They were like you and me. They had their problems, and they were pretty big problems. <laughs> well, that's why things are the way they are. I guess the the story a little, little bit is fascinating. I want to tell this. I think again, I tell so many stories. I know that some of you have heard it, but the way it happened in Scotland was there was a, a church, and uh, there's still a church there. It's still there. It's a big building. Uh, it's called St. Giles uh, in Edinburgh, biggest church in town, and uh, they were getting ready to have church one Sunday morning, and the Reformation had started, and the rich people, the people had money, they could sit in the pews, and the poor people, they'd sit around the walls on the edge. And there was a lady named Jenny Geddes who came into church that morning carrying her little three-legged milking stool so she'd have a place to sit. And she put her little milking stool down along the wall and sat down on it, waited for the performances to begin at church. And some clergyman got up, decided he was going to do the mass. He was going to celebrate the mass. And he began saying, Hocus, Corpus, Mias, and all that. And Jenny Geddes saw what was going on. She stood up and and screamed in her rustic dialect, How dare you speak the moss in my lug? How dare you speak the moss in my lug? Lug is an old word, Scottish word for ear. How dare you speak the mass? That's what she was in. And she threw her milking stool at the at the man of the cloth, stand up in front of the church. I don't know if it injured him or not. And that started a riot. Everybody went crazy. Started stripping the icons and the idols and grabbed the priest and stripped off all his fancy clothes that, you know, funny thing about priests, they wear a lot of clothes when they go in, you know, so you know who they are. And they threw all that stuff out in front of the church and burned it. And within two weeks, the, the riot had spread and they burned all the idols in the whole country. And that explains why, too, when the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians got to America, people wouldn't have much to do with them. And the reason why they didn't accept them, they were boring. <laughs> they didn't put pictures on their walls. They were they had a pinch hand against idolatry. They got they took it real serious. It became part of their culture. 
it overwhelmed them even more so than the Puritans. And, and that's why, too, they were always driven to the edge of the frontiers, and that's why our gun call filled with Scotch-Irish words like or phrases like flash in the pan, drop him in his tracks, draw a bead, lock, stock, and barrel. Those are all Scotch-Irish words because the Scotch-Irish were always driven to the edges of the frontier because people didn't like them. They were boring. I'm not exaggerating that. Um, so all these things have had an effect upon us as Americans. And don't dismiss ancient history as not being important. No, it, it tells the story of who you are. It's very important. And why you do what you do and why you've had the experiences you've had. Yep. Well, that's the difference. So, oh, Roger, are you going to say something as well? I was just gonna, uh, Pat was trying to say something. I think I heard him in the background. Pat, did you have something to add or ask? Must be, must not. I did, Roger. There he is. Okay, I thought it was Pat. Very faint. Can you talk in the microphone? This is John in Florida. Oh, hey, John. What's your opinion of the pronunciation Yeshua for Jesus? Well, I think it's all right to do, but it's, people get caught up. Again, people get caught up, sincere Christian people get caught up in trying to pronounce words and names in a special way. And the only possible reason they could do that is because they somehow think there's some kind of power in it. And there isn't. Uh, God is not a genie that you rub a lamp and he comes out and, and grants you your wish. If you say hocus pocus, or by the way, hocus pocus is from the days when, well, the Roman priest still does it today. He says, hocus corpus meus. He does that over the, the bread and the wine. That's supposed to change it. He says to the body and blood of Jesus Christ and the people in Europe and centuries ago, they'd hear him say that they couldn't speak Latin. Sounded to him like, sounded to them like he was saying hocus pocus. And that's where hocus pocus comes from. That's not what God is. He's not a genie. It's idolatry to think if you pronounce a, and I'm not accusing you of this. I'm glad you raised it. You may have something totally different in mind, but it gives me an opportunity to say things that I think are important. Don't worry about how you pronounce words. I met a fellow here the other day, and you meet him all the time. His name is Jesus, which is Jesus. And he was a, grew up in Mexico or something. But, uh, the word Joshua, Yeshua, is an all right way to pronounce the word, but why not know what it means instead of worrying about how famous song uh, by, written by a couple who are very well-known in Christian circles and Christian people. And the name of the song is There's Something About That Name. And, when you, and it made them famous. And they're... Well, they're getting old now, but they got a lot of concerts all over the country. In the song, they talk about how they've seen people when that it has a an effect. It can heal diseases. It can uh, make blind men see, and all that. that's the implication. That that's that's idolatry. That's demonism. No, 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 no. The important thing is not the name, the way they pronounced it, but to know what it means and believe it. What does is, what is Yeshua mean? It means safener he happens. 
he happens is the holy name of God, Yahoha. That's the way it probably is pronounced, but it has a meaning too, and it means he happens. He happens. He's the happening one. He's the one that makes it happen. And he is the safener. He safens men for eternity. They don't go to hell. May I comment, Brent? That's the important one. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Brent, this is Bob. Go ahead. Yeah, Bob. Um, something came to me that I hadn't ever understood when you said that Mary meant bitter rebel. Well, the first thing that came to mind is where Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm assuming that's the same root if you've got Mara and Mary and Naomi saying that she should be called Mara because she's bitter. Is that valid? That is true. The same root. That is, that's never, exactly the Hebrew word is Mara. Never computed that. Remember in the Old Testament when Moses got fed up and God, God Moses got fed up with the moan and the groaning and God said, grind up these idols they made and throw the grindings into this water and make, and they threw that other stuff in there and make them drink it. And it made the water bitter. That's Mara. Bitter. By the way, bitter. Bitter. The word bitter. And you see it in Proverbs too. That's Mara, the Hebrew word, is sometimes translated rebellion. Why is it translated rebellion? Because bitterness will always produce rebellion. What is rebellion? When we say rebellion, we mean rebellion against true authority. All authority is from God. And anyone who is fighting true authority is a rebel. That's why the I remember reading um, the uh, memoirs of uh, Joseph Plum Martin. And he, he tells about when they encountered a Hessian patrol. And they on the road, and they saw him, they immediately went to the side of the road to get cover in the trees and a, a skirmish ensued shots were fired and when it was over the hessians fled and they left one of their comrades lying in the middle of the road wounded really bad and one of the messmates of uh, of joseph felt sorry for him and picked him up put him on his shoulders and they were going to walk away and then set up camp and they crossed this bridge and this hessian on the shoulders of this young American colonel, said in his broken German, he said, oh, good rebel, don't hurt poor Hessian. Because he was jostling him a little bit, and he was wounded bad, and had a bullet in him. Called him a rebel, called the American a rebel, begging for him to not hurt him, but called rebel. And this kid pitched him over the rail of the bridge into a mud bank, and uh, Joseph said the last time he saw the Hessian, he was had his head in the mud trying to get turned over in all of his pain. And uh, that was the last he ever saw of him, and he don't know if he lived or not. But the point he was making is it made the Americans bad, mad if anyone called them a rebel because rebellion is seen in the English tongue as that which is against true authority. And that's why the Yankees call the Southerners rebels, see? That was an insult. But course we said as americans when we were fighting britain no we're not fighting against authority we're fighting to establish true authority you're the 
ones that you're you're the rebels, you're the rebellion, yeah. you're rebelling against true authority, and you're doing things to us that are not lawful. That's lawlessness. That's rebellion against God. So, you know, the, in the Old Testament, every time you see the word bitter, just count it in that that has to do with rebellion because bitterness, when bitterness, according to the Bible, and you see this flowing everywhere, always produces rebellion against true authority. Always. That's very interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, well, good to hear just, from you, Mom. Just, just a little addendum concerning the name of Jesus and how to pronounce it. You know, I think it's one of these uh, uh-huh. common misconceptions when people pray and they end their prayer in the name of Jesus. And I think that's gotten the popular connotation uh-huh. that it has something to do with the pronunciation. And I have... As of recently, the last mm-hmm. few years, I have changed it, and I won't say that anymore. I say, in the authority of Christ, or in the authority, under the authority of Jesus, because that's what it really means. You're doing it as his agent, good. you know. Yeah. Just a that No, thought. I'm with you. I do the same thing. I, I do the same thing. I'm glad you brought that up. And uh-huh. Oh, that's important. Because every time, again, you see the name shame, or the Hebrew word shame in the Bible, shame is the Hebrew word that means name. And every time you see it, just substitute scope of jurisdiction, scope of authority, or the English word right. Because that's what it means. Every time the word name appears in the name, that means in the authority of whoever they're talking about. And when you Say at the end of a prayer in the name of Jesus, people think that's like a postage stamp. Sometimes they think it's like a postage stamp. Uh, if you don't put it on there, it won't get past the ceiling. Well, that, again, that'd be if you think that that's idolatry. Because I hear people pray it, and then, then they'll go, little, some little kids, sometimes grown ups, they get to the end of the prayer and they go, In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. They'll say it real fast. You just get it out of the way. Let's understand what it means. Uh, name. If I say I come to you in the name of the United States, that means I come to you having been given authority to do so in the name of the United States. When our when our ships fly their flags all over the world, they're out there in the name of the United States. That's right. And what is to go to another one of the another one of the commandments taking the name of what that means is to claim the authority of Jesus Christ for what you're doing when you don't have authority for him from him to do that. That's called taking the, the authority of the Lord thy God in pain, to emptiness, to no purpose. A false flag, we say. False flag. Saying you have authority to do something when you don't. And uh, the Bible forbids that too, of course. Brent, I'm going to play your secretary. I'm going to play your secretary here and tell you it's the bottom of the second hour. Oh, thank you very much. Well, now, Roger, now I can get it off. You guys can talk about me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we often do. Oh, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Daryl wants to talk about you. Oh. Well, uh, I want to – I want to – I want to uh, bring up, uh, you, you mentioned Queen Elizabeth and, uh, and the colonies are, are you familiar with, uh, the naming of Virginia? 
uh, Brent? Whoops. Are you a little bit. The, then the, how, how it came to be. Name that. Yeah. Name, name the, the Virgin Queen. Uh, but there's more. Yeah. I probably don't know. So go ahead. Well, that was <clears throat> that that pretty uh, that pretty much describes the uh, the intent of that was uh, Sir Walter Raleigh gained the uh, the land patent, the letter of patent that Queen Elizabeth had issued to Humphrey Gilbert. And uh, Humphrey Gilbert, of course, uh, was never successful in that he died uh, trying to uh, cross the Atlantic. <laughs> and uh on his return he 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 made it most of the way to uh america and then turned around and and uh perished in a ship on the way back in a strong gale the name of the ship was called the squirrel <laughs> but uh he uh he was uh, sir walter raleigh's uh cousin humphrey gilbert oh and um uh, and that's a whole story about that character uh but uh, what queen elizabeth did was she granted she granted uh sir walter raleigh no actually they were half brothers that's what that was uh humphrey gilbert was sir walter raleigh's half brother and uh so sir walter raleigh was queen elizabeth's uh one of her favorites at court and uh he talked elizabeth persuaded her to give him the 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 letter of grant for uh a a business <laughs> the colony and he founded roanoke uh that didn't it, it didn't last but anyway he 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 was a prodigious prodigitator prodigitator <laughs> Mr. Sir Walter Raleigh, he was, he was very charming, as it, as it was said, and uh, he named it Virginia after the Virginia uh, Virgin Queen, and that's how, that's how Virgin Virginia acquired its name after the Virgin Queen. So, you said something about Roanoke there, Daryl. The Roanoke's way on the western side of the state. Wouldn't they have founded it more yeah. along the seaboard? No, no, it was Roanoke, uh, Roanoke Island. It was uh, a swamp-infested mosquito oh, okay. Okay. swampland that right. only lasted uh, three years at a great expense of life and money, and um, it uh, it was called the Roanoke was called the Lost Colony. Can somebody get that phone, please? Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, well, I'm uh, getting yeah, was Roanoke. I was yeah. getting Roanoke on the western part of the country confused with an island over on the seaboard, sounds like. Yeah, uh, so uh, quite a quite an interesting history there around 1590. So good afternoon. Uh, hey, there's uh, Cody. Just, Hold on, let's I, just, I just I want to make sure Brent knows his time schedule. So if he's got to be in court or yeah. somewhere, who knows? Hey, Brent, do you have to be in court? Thank you, Roger. I'm. I'm. Thank you all. This thing 
all the time. Okay. Well, just as long as you know your time schedule, I wanted to just make sure and alert you. All right. I've got something for Brent if he's still got a minute. Well, shoot it out. Cody, while I'm changing my shirt, you can talk to me. Okay. Hey, Brent, uh, good morning. This is Cody. I was trying to get a hold of you to see if you would be interested in being uh, counsel to a movement in Illinois, since I think your license is still in Illinois, to uh, look at a constitutional amendment to uh, require, if the constitutional amendment would pass, the state of Illinois' constitution allows the change of legislative structure and procedure with 8% of the last election's voters signing the petition. Then it would go on the ballot to have a constitutional amendment. I think we need to let the people ratify any of the legislature's laws, and we just write the people into the legislature and require their ratification, and maybe we can clean up this nonsense in Illinois. And I'm looking for some people putting a group together, trying to raise a little money, do mailings, and see if we can get this going. Are you got anybody in the oil business with you? Not yet. I've been also talking to some people that were involved with Tom DeVore, and they're interested in trying to, you know, just set the infant stages right now. I, I don't know if it's legal to send out the petition by mail. That would be the ideal situation. It'd just be a lot easier with COVID and all that to get, you know, to get 400, 350,000 signatures by I would first start by sending to, you know, dual voter households and try to get, you know, two two petitions signed in one envelope or some envelope or whatever. But, you know, that would be so it probably would need several hundred thousand dollars just to do the mailings. But um, that's kind of my game plan. If I can get enough people, I did talk to Edgar County watchdogs, John Kraft. And he thought it wasn't too bad of an idea, you know, but um if anybody's from Illinois that's got an interest, you get those guys on with you, and then you'll be in business. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm just trying to. I, I think I did send you a link to my Google Docs. I'm just trying to figure out how I would. I'm sure the Supreme Court would try to argue that it's not a representative form of government. But if you've still got the legislature, how could they argue that? You've got the legislature. You're just requiring the people that gives them the authority to be a dual check on their power. So. You know, that's that's the uh, the issue that I would see in the future. But anyway, break. I don't know what... Well, I'll call you, Cody. OK, thanks, Brad. I'll call you. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've been trying to get a hold of you. Thanks. Cody. OK, Appreciate thanks. Yep. OK, who else got something to add this morning? Break. Break. Jay break. Grant here. Jay Grant here from Colorado Springs. Roger, you Hello, are Jay. fabulous. Thank you. Uh, I, I've been the guy that's been bugging you in the emails about what papers, what papers I should file, how, in what order, what cover letters, and the fact that I can't get on Eurofolk. Well, you're uh, on. You're on now. Well, this yes, and that's what I'm celebrating, okay. and I'm also celebrating thanking you with that. And Brent, um, we just got your little book about uh, never talk to the police, I believe it's called, or something of that nature. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into that one. And uh, you are you are quite an educated, soft-spoken, very kind, fatherly voice on my end over here. And I would like to know, 
how does one start to read the Bible? I know there's all kinds of people in Gen- in Genesis, and I'm sorry, I just can't beget enough patience to get through that. I need something orderly. Do I start chronologically? Do I start with the books? No, here's of the what Bible you do. Here's what. But no, here's what you do. I'm okay. Glad you asked. Here's what you do. You go to First John. Yes. First John. Yes. And you read it in one setting, okay. preferably in the morning when your mind is clear. Yes. Don't I don't advise smoking cigarettes, but if that's what you do, light up a cigarette, get no, a cup I don't. of coffee, yeah. whatever whatever you do to relax. Good, good, good. Whatever you do to relax, <clears throat> read it in one setting and read it from. The King James okay. or the New American Standard. Or you can read it from mine. Yeah. <laughs> my, you can go to the website and get mine on electronic form, or you can get it in hard copy. The what, Good Book what, Uncooked. What would be the name of that, sir? The, go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and Name of the book is Good Book Uncooked. Oh, I'm sorry, I did Good not book, know that. Uncooked. Okay, cool. Thank you. I'm listening. Yeah, you can, that's the that's my translation of the Bible. It's got thirty six thousand footnotes and a lot of appendices. But whatever you do when you read First John, yeah. read it in one sitting, and then the next day, do the same thing again. Okay. And the next day, do the same thing again. And do that for thirty days, <clears throat> okay. And you'll have a foundation. You'll have a foundation to jump off from. The reason I say First John because John, mm-hmm. of all the writers of the New Testament, is black and white. There is no gray area in anything he writes. He's the he was the inside three of the jury that Jesus Christ impaneled, and he was the one that was more inside than Peter and James, who were with him as the inside three. He is the foreman of the... Uh, I think this or I think that. And Paul the Apostle give ice and says, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do like the Corinthians, but here's what I would do. But John never does thing. This is a characteristic. He said this, he who hath the Son hath life. And he who hath not the Son of God hath not life. And the wrath of God hangs by a thread over him. That's John. That's John all the way. You read First John, you'll know what can be known in a fundamental way, and what can what what can be known, whether it's right or wrong, up or down, white or black, in or out, heaven or hell. He presents uh-huh. it that way. Do that for thirty days, and then after you get that done, thirty days, then go to the Gospel of John, same writer, and. And divide it into three sections of seven chapters each. There's 21 chapters in the book. And read seven chapters each day for 30 days. And then go to the next seven chapters, then the next seven chapters. Okay. Now, if you do that, if you do that, you could get the whole New Testament read 30 (coughs) years following that method. But but there is no secret to studying the Bible. I've tried it all. I've seen all the methods. No, you just got to have the discipline, like brushing your teeth, to sit down and read it. But you will find, if the Spirit of God lives in you, you will find that it's enjoyable. And you'll say, hey, I needed to know that. 
Oh, I'm beginning to understand. Oh, I'm putting this word here together with this word over here. Yeah. And you begin to connect the dots. So that's what I suggest you do. Start with First John. Something has been happening to me since I've been here in Colorado Springs for four years. I, there's a lot of military folk. There's all kind of churches almost on every street corner over here. We got more churches than we do liquor stores. Uh, praise God. <laughs> um, but but something is happening to me. It's just that people are very, very nice. And uh, I, I'm kind of not used to that. Um, and something's happening to me. I guess I'm being open and amenable and uh, receptive. And so when you said something that's not really confusing, I always found that the Bible, having been, you know, um, confirmed Lutheran, I, I did not understand the doggone thing. I was forced to memorize and do all this. So anyway, I haven't really learned anything, even at my old age. But I'm open now, sir. And I and I thank you for giving me that start. And and I will do that. I will do that. Yeah, great. Thank right. you so much. Well, I'm glad you're finally able to get on because I know I've been getting <laughs> your emails about the problems you've been having and stuff. So. Yeah. You've navigated them and at least to get on the air. So congratulations on that. Thank you, Roger. Uh, you know, you, you are just the best, sir. Thank you for opening me up to a, an entirely uh, new world. And your book is a masterpiece. And so well, uh, paperwork's going out next week. I got a stack of uh, Roger. All right. Hold on. Bye. Merry Christmas. Okay. Thank you very much. The, the masterpiece aspect of my book is John and Glenn's editing. I always give them credit, okay, and I'm glad you're able to join us. And, you know, this is what I keep telling folks, especially if you're new. This is life-changing information. It changes your life because it changes the way you think. And you can't change the way you think without changing the way you live. Yes, sir. Okay. So, and I, I just hope, I guess my prayer, if you want to put it that way, is that this information has as much effect on you, the listener, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, as it's had on me and others. I can see it with others. I can see the change in Daryl. I can see the change in Bob. I can see the change in some of our other students that have been around here. And the empowerment of this information personally is like nothing else I know of on this planet, quite frankly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thank you again, sir. Yeah, sir. You're very you're welcome. welcome. Glad you're able to join you're us. Daryl, you're Roger, shopping. Roger, Brent's still with us? I don't know yeah. if he is or not. He probably is listening. I well, had a question for him. I just wanted to see if he if he, uh, he had, uh, did he pass the bar exam? Or do you need the bar exam to actually practice? I don't, I don't, uh, as, as I don't think bar, uh, Brent's a member of the bar. Okay. Well, that's there, what I figured, but I'm wondering, is there, how do you practice as a lawyer without that? Well, the, yeah, bar the, the, the bar is a union. Well, probably a bar exam you got to pass to get licensed, but the bar is nothing but a union. So this, there's, okay. So you, you pass the bar exam and then you don't have to get affiliated with, with the you, bar. You don't have to as join. Far as, that's correct. You don't have to join the bar is my understanding. It's a very small. And I think the bar person. goes. Does the bar go back to England, Roger? I believe it. British British accredited regency? That's what I've always seen. I don't know factually about it, but there's a very small amount of lawyers that are in the uh, American Bar Association, and most of them are communists. Okay. My understanding. Daryl, you've been chomping at the bit to say something I'm sensing. Oh, I I just sort of taken in the – 
the last hour or so conversation of Brent and what he was covering and uh, just to integrate it with this information that we usually talk about in that uh, when you, when you decide that you want your power back at that point, you become dangerous. Yep. That's why they want to call you a terrorist. And, and now this is this is why they want you. Let me integrate this with what Brent was talking about. This is this is why they want your you and your and your your boys to be effeminate. And I, I've I've been grinding on this axe for quite a while about effeminacy which has nothing to do with a negative towards women. Women cannot be, in my understanding, be effeminate. <laughs> Effeminacy is men acting like women. And uh, so uh, effeminate men are not powerful, and hence they're not dangerous. And uh, because they have... They've lost or left their first station, their first duty. So when you decide to take your power back, you you take back your duty. You accept the burden of that duty. Right. You can no longer be a victim. And uh, that makes you dangerous. Uh, dangerous in ideas. And uh, and so on and so forth, but uh, I, I appreciate Brent talking about that today. It's really it's it's very quite important. I I've told some of the older heads around here about when I went to a church, a family church of about fifteen to twenty people for about three years. And one one night we showed up there. And they informed us that they were going to have female pastors. And I looked them all in the eye and I said, you know what this book is? And I held up the Bible. And they all looked at me. They're all there. And I said, it's a law book. <laughs> now, where did I get that from? Yeah. <laughs> where did I get that from? Rommel School and of Law. And you would have thought. I I did that, but I also got it from Brent. Uh, and and you would have thought that I had uh, pronounced myself to be a heretic. They they absolutely not the men because they were cowed. The women went absolutely bonkers when I said that. And uh, there was this woman in there who who claimed that she was going to be a pastor. And she pointed at me and she says, you are young in your faith and you need to read the Bible more. And I said, well, that's a profoundly accurate statement, ma'am. I said, you appear to be old in your faith and you need to read the Bible again. <laughs> First Timothy 2. First Timothy 2. And, and uh, so... Uh, the women had a lot to say. The men sat there looking down between their legs. And I said, well, 
I don't really need to be here anymore. So, effeminate men. Yep. Well, boy, we sure got a lot dangerous. of uh, got a lot of illustrations of that everywhere you turn these days. Yeah. So, so who else? Uh, who else got something to add? Yeah. Here? We're in the last few minutes of the program today. Hey, good morning, Roger. Cody, good to have hey. you. Yeah, I don't know. If you've probably been pretty busy. I don't know if you got my Telegram voice note, but uh, I did. Twitter, Twitter has spaces, and if Paul is rebroadcasting, you should try to somehow rebroadcast into the Twitter space. You know, there's just so many users on Twitter that could be, um, you know, propagandized by this message. So. Paul, you'd have to set that up. Is Paul with us? Is Paul Maybe lurk, you can send lurking? Yeah, I'm lurking. I'm lurking. You know, now, Cody, you want to tell Paul about this? Something about Twitter's doing rebroadcast now? Twitter has oh. what they call Twitter Spaces, which is kind of like Telegram's uh, voice conferencing and all that. But there's just so many users on Twitter that you really should rebroadcast in there. I don't know how you do it with your mixer. I'm sure there's a way to do it. And uh, well, you Roger, don't mean, you should you don't. set up a Twitter. You know, they may they may ban you. But I would get a Twitter set up and start, you know, retweeting the PPN links and all that. I'm not I, much. Uh, of, I'm not much of a social media guy, Cody, and I'm not a very good self promoter either. Okay, I was real good at promoting other people's stuff, but I'm not very good at promoting me. Okay, and I kind of leave that up to you guys. Well, if you had a, if you set up a Twitter, we can tag you at least. You know, it makes it easier. And uh, you don't have to use it, but we can at least tag you, and that'll start following the conversation. Okay. Don't know much about it. it never been there. I think they set up me. Uh, the guy that set up my original website, I think, set up a, an account over there, but I've never used it, and I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's free advertising. Yeah, you need to find followers. <clears throat> well, there's billions. And you do that with keywords, with hashtags. Yeah. yeah. So I have a Twitter account. I stream live to it. So okay. I don't stream this program live. But I, I expect all of you guys to be out there because of uh, almost of uh, what John told us, you know, the only way I can protect my liberty is to help you protect yours. I've educated and helped a lot of you get your liberty, and now you've got that burden. Yeah, I've been tagging you. There's there's probably going to be some new people showing up one of these days. It's just, you know, spaces well, may be a little bit easier for people to join. They don't have to download a new app or whatever. Right. Well, I guess we're going to, when when things get bad enough and people get desperate enough that they're really looking for answers that they've never considered before, I guess that'll be our time. The big thing on well, Twitter, right? Let me just mention this real quick. All the FBI collusion with Twitter, all these collusion by liberal employees at Twitter, Elon Musk has released it all in the last couple of weeks. You've probably seen some of that, Roger. Sure. And it is it is waking people up, so it's a really ripe, opportune time. Okay. And uh, well, Paul, thank you, guys. You want to look in. Paul, you want to look into that? Maybe it's another outlet we could utilize somehow. 
I had an issue for Brent, and this is regarding um, the dangers that were reported by Pierre Corey for use of the Prife instrument. Okay. And um, Do you there may be here. Dave, hold two. on. Hold on. You hold on a minute. The Pierre Corey uh, thing was a woman that Stacy gave one to that used um, it on her silicone bath. Well, that came from Stacy. Okay, so I don't know where you're saying it's untrue, but anybody's had a bad experience with the wand. So Dave's going to tell us how potentially dangerous it is. They, uh, uh, no, two Roger. years, two I'm, years. I'm telling, I'm telling folks. I'm asking Brent about the legal Brent's liability. Not here. Now you know that Corey has reported numerous problems with people who have been. Sorry, had to do that. Thank you. Tidal wave, duck and cover. You better, Dave, you need to go start listening to another program. I get kicked out of the chat. I get kicked out of the chat. Who's the children that's kicking me out of the chat? Don't be subversive to the chat. How about that? That's probably a good start. Okay. I wonder if he realizes that we are not talking to him. We have something above the high school uh, grade level here. I mean, look, this thing's been around the world two years. It was out in the world for a year before it ever came here. If there was all this bad backlash and danger, you'd be hearing about it. Besides one guy, Pierre Corey, that was contacted by a woman that didn't use it correctly and put it 107 minutes on her silicone breast implants. What does she claim it did, Roger? I can't I imagine. No, I have no. Much. I have no idea. I have no idea. Okay, but you get a couple of negative. You get a couple of negative comments out of how many thousands of people, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people have been using it, Dave. Well, Roger she became warm-breasted. That's all. Uh, I guess so. He's gone. Uh, Trolling, trolling happens, and all, all manners, <laughs> trolls. Uh, so, you know, I know. I try not to get upset about it, but I keep getting barrage. Technical, technical, technical. Is this? Is that? It's Peter Corey. I keep hearing that crap. I don't hear any of you guys coming in saying that thing damaged me. All I hear is my ninety-four-year-old mother saying she can walk again and she couldn't before she got the damn thing. Dave, yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a groin problem and a, and a knee problem that just wouldn't go away, and three days after I started using it, it's it's gone. Yeah, Dave, it doesn't okay. sound like it hurt, Daryl. <laughs> it's it, and so I I don't know I've probably got a half a dozen people that I know that have bought it on recommendation and of course i'm not i going to recommend that to my my friends and family you know? yeah of course so unless i had yeah so what is all what are all what's is all this chat crap going on right here someone's um we, we have to let people in and um I, what i'd like is the monitoring the 
Well, well, you know, two, three people talking, somebody talking in the background. Please, you guys. Do you want the courtesy of this forum the way it is, or do you want us to have to alter things so this kind of crap doesn't happen? Jeez almighty. Okay, well, there's the whistler. It's the end of the program, which was a good program until here at the end, and uh, so be it. Um, we'll be back tomorrow on the Saturday edition, and uh, I'm going to do Thumper Show live on Sunday, and then I'm going to do... Uh, Dave, just for you, I'm going to replay the Stacy hour-and-a-half interview on RBN Sunday night. Just for you, Dave. <sighs> Sorry, folks. Um, it's the craziness of the world we live in, okay? I'd like to think there's a little sanity here, but when there is most of the time, occasionally it gets insane. Okay? Sorry. When, when you're over the target, you get attacked, and I'm glad you're speaking up, Roger. You're not offending anyone in this room. I, I, you know, I'm, I mean, Jeff Rents has put out the biggest bunch of bullshit on his program for three or four shows that I've ever heard him put out outside of a bunch of his USO and talk backwards stuff. Okay. So anyway, if hey the, Roger, yes, Lisa, and I and, and I am in no way siding with Data Dave. But as far as I've heard you say, you didn't know about Dr. Pierre Corey. And I have watched him through the COVID stuff. He is one of the first doctors when Senator Ron Johnson started.